23-year-old woman is seeing her third doctor for the same problem. I hope this one listens to me, she thinks. Time and time again, she has felt dismissed, disregarded, and quite frankly gaslit by healthcare professionals. But she knows her pain is real, and she refuses to accept that it's simply, quote-unquote, in her head. Why is this happening to me, she wonders. Is it because I'm young? Because I'm a woman? Because all the tests have been normal? How does this happen to patients? Shouldn't something be done? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to a special episode of the Hurt Podcast. So today, we're going to talk about something a little different from a pain condition. We're going to focus on the patient experience. We're going to talk about medical gaslighting. So what is medical gaslighting? So first, the word gaslighting comes from the play Gaslit, written in 1938 by Patrick Hamilton, about a husband's attempt to drive his wife insane. Since then, the term has evolved to mean manipulating someone using psychological methods into questioning their own sanity or powers of reasoning. So research has suggested that women and persons of color are more likely to be gaslit. Studies have shown that compared with men, Women face longer wait times to be diagnosed with diseases like cancer and heart disease and are more likely not to be offered medication for pain. In fact, symptoms in women are twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with mental health issues when the symptoms were actually consistent with heart disease. Persons of color, and particularly black patients, are more likely to be labeled as non-compliant, which can result in receiving worse care. So battling this very issue is Alana Jacqueline, author of the book Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Chronic Illness. She will be joining me today to discuss medical gaslighting, to shed more light on the issue and help patients become advocates of their own health. Ms. Jacqueline is a patient who spent years battling medical gaslighting herself before becoming a patient advocate. She has since worked as the managing editor of Global Genes, the largest rare and genetic disease nonprofit in the world. She has spent over 10,000 hours interviewing patients and their caregivers on their experience and has gone to enter the world of healthcare marketing, working for companies like WeGo Health and Health Union to partner patients with their pharmaceutical counterparts for insight groups, commercial opportunities, and influencer marketing campaigns. Her work as a patient influencer has included partnering with companies like Abbott Pharmaceuticals to star in plasma donation PSAs. Her work in social media, which spans across Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook, particularly in the area of medical gaslighting, has garnered the attention of media giants like Dr. Phil and That's Life. Her TikTok videos have amassed millions of views and have been a trigger for women to share their own stories. And she is the inspiration behind the Lifetime TV series, Behind the Mystery, Rare, and Genetic. So welcome, Alana. Thank you so much. So I want to really start by thanking you for being open and willing to talk about your own experiences. So, you know, can you tell us whatever you feel comfortable about your own experiences with healthcare professionals and kind of what got you started on this journey to shed light on medical gaslighting? 
Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the show. And it's great that we can have this conversation about medical gaslighting because uh, it is a huge topic and one that is important to discuss between patients and doctors. But as far as my personal story with it, uh, for all its twists and turns and talk of rare disease, uh, it's not really that unique. And I think we've we've all had experiences where we felt vulnerable in the exam room or not taken seriously. Uh, and I hope for most women, it's it's not a repeat experience, but as someone who grew up with a chronic undiagnosed illness until the age of 19, my experiences were repeated and frequent. <laughs> and I had two, I had two main issues that followed me throughout childhood. One was that I would catch infections really easily and I wouldn't be able to recover from them. And the other issue was just persistent abdominal pain and GI problems. And I spent a lot of my childhood in and out of doctor's offices and hospitals, getting tested, uh, taking antibiotics, getting colonoscopies and endoscopies. I was really just like that sick kid. Uh, so I had all these tests that really didn't reveal the root cause of the problem. And when I turned 18, I really started advocating for myself um, and my own care. And just a year later, I was given two diagnoses. Um, one was this rare disease called primary immune deficiency disease. It's also known as hypogammaglobulin anemia, which is a mouthful. Um, and it basically just meant that I was missing an element of my immune system that would have helped me fight off infections. And the other diagnosis was discovered after my gynecologist agreed to do an exploratory surgery on me. And I was in a weird way, really fortunate uh, in that my gynecologist treated multiple women in my family, a lot of whom had really severe endometriosis. Um, and he was merciful enough to do an exploratory on me at 19 years old, which I'm sure, as you know, is really uncommon to do, especially if you don't have an obstruction. Um, and But he went in and he found severe adhesions. He described my intestines as being like globulated. Uh, and he said that, um, you know, it was like every organ in my abdominal cavity was webbed with scar tissue and bound together in a ball and pulled to one side of my body, um, which had been causing all this pain that, you know, doctors had kind of brushed me off and told me it was nothing was wrong. Um, anyway, he told me it didn't look like endometriosis, but that he'd never really seen adhesions that severe in someone who had never had an abdominal surgery or an injury in that area. Um, and this was just kind of the, the start of my story because the next 10 years, I would struggle to explain this diagnosis uh, and its severity, both of them, to future physicians who would handle my care, to hospitalists who would need to take precautions, to surgeons and so many others um, who just kind of disregarded me uh, and failed to assist me with preventative care and management. And once I was in crisis, would force me into really dangerous situations, both surgical and medical. I really had to become an assertive advocate and make kind of like a full study out of why healthcare providers gaslight patients and how patients can be on the defense in those situations without, without being belligerent or obstinate, which is a, a big issue. Um, it's very delicate, very dangerous kind of balance, and my work really revolves around how patients can navigate that without alienating their providers or putting themselves at risk of substandard care. First of all, I'm so sorry that you went through that, and you are absolutely right that that is not a, unfortunately, not a unique experience. Um, I 
absolutely believe that this this happens a lot in the medical system. And you kind of touched upon several different aspects of this. Um, one of them, you know, I wanted to kind of delve more into. Do you do you think that a part of why, or maybe a lot of why you dealt with so much difficulty with the healthcare system was because of your gender? So research has overall suggested that women and people of color are more likely to be discriminated against uh, or gaslit. And uh, in fact, health problems in women are more likely to be labeled as due to mental health issues, uh, weight issues, just not taking care of yourself properly, have a glass of wine, try to relax. Like, do you, do you find this to be true? Do you, do you notice this more in particular groups? Did you notice this more for yourself? Um, do you think that this was potentially why you were also ignored in so many ways? Yes, absolutely. And for the listeners who can't see me right now, um, I'll explain that not only am I white, but I am um, translucent. I am a Victorian ghost child, white. Um, so as far as like uh, coming from the point of, of um, you know, looking at communities of people of color, uh, I am not one of them, but I have uh, studied a lot of it and obviously spoken and interviewed so many patients. Uh, and the research does not lie and neither do the anecdotes that I hear from these patients. So when it comes to not being believed in the exam room, you have very few options with how you can react. You can fight, flight, or freeze, which is how I think of it. And when we say fight, we mean advocate. But if you don't know the exact words and tone to use when advocating, you come off as non-compliant or even aggressive. When we say flight, we mean leave and find another provider, which is not an option if you're low income, if you're in a rural area. Uh, if you're working with a limited insurance plan, or like all of us at the moment, if you're dealing with long waits because of COVID. So when we say freeze, we mean to submit. Agree to a diagnosis or treatment plan you don't think is valid under the circumstances presented. And this is the path that most women are forced to take, not because they're not strong or capable, because of fear, uh, because of a lack of resources, or simply a lack of knowing that there are ways to engage in a discourse that could produce a different outcome. And when you look at certain communities, um, they are, of course, at a disadvantage. African-American women live with a constant and very real fear that they will be looked at as the stereotypical angry Black woman, um, and that at its least harmful um, can get them removed from a practice, and at its most harmful could get them arrested in a hospital room for causing a disturbance. And those with mental illnesses, which are another community that faces a lot of medical bias, um, they're living with physical symptoms constantly attributed to stress, anxiety, depression, or other mental illnesses, you know, often without proper testing or even acknowledgement by their HCPs that there might be something else going on here. And the same goes for those who are overweight. Single symptom attribution means that these doctors aren't looking at the whole patient and they're letting that single bias get in the way and it's deadly. There are also communities like trans folks who are discriminated against as having, you know, severe mental illness or having so much body dysmorphia and dissatisfaction with their bodies that their providers think they are self-harming or they're not taking care of themselves. And all of this is biased. And all of this means that we don't ask questions. We don't run tests. We don't get answers. Absolutely. And, you know, you use the word belligerent, which is interesting um, because I, I think it's absolutely true, especially for women. I would say that women are much more often labeled as quote unquote crazy. Oh yeah. It's not an uncommon question to be like, oh, is she crazy? Like, is that, you know, and you're like, no, it's, it's not. Would you ask the same question if it was a male patient? 
Less likely, less likely. And Dr. Patel, we've covered numerous episodes on our, our very first episode is literally called Hysterical Women. So it's literally about, about how there is a significant lack of research. You had mentioned research, um, significant lack of research on the conditions that affect women more than they affect men. And that only started changing very recently, really since the 1980s, which is very unfortunate. I mean, it's slowly changing, but it's still a long way off. It's still it's still a long way off comparatively. It does it, you can't even compare the two. Um, and then we've also covered um, we've covered you know a pain in the trans population. We've covered maternal mortality. So you know we definitely cover a lot of the topics on how um, uh, healthcare in general is kind of behind on women and people of color. And I think this is a big part of it. The gaslighting happens because of that. Because oftentimes the response, if you don't know you have no idea what's going on, you don't know is like, well, I don't know, maybe they need to see a psychiatrist, you know, not like, maybe I just don't, I just don't know, like, I'm, I'm the one lacking the information here. And maybe I should figure out who else they could possibly see, because I don't know the answer to why you're suffering the way you are. And the answer may not be that it's quote, unquote, in your head, that there may be a real organic, not that that's not real, but, you know, like a organic reason, um, such as a genetic disorder that might be causing a lot of their pain. When I think about that, I think about my um, my personal experiences. First of all, I, I'm so fortunate and I know that I know that I I had so many opportunities that so many people don't when they have rare genetic diseases. You know, I had access to great doctors. I had access to testing. I had family that supported me. Um, and it still took me 19 years to get to a diagnosis. And it took me 30 years, 30 years to get to a doctor that took me seriously enough that they put together an effective treatment plan for me. And for me to have such of a step up in that situation already, I can only imagine what it's like for people who don't have those advantages. And I, I really don't need to imagine. I know that they're not alive because of that. Right. Absolutely. And you had mentioned insurance. In the medical healthcare system, unfortunately, insurance ends up playing a big, a big role. Um, which, you know, in this case, that's a separate, entirely separate sort of issue because this is, <laughs> that's not something that physicians could even do anything about, which is frustrating for for us too. But getting back to specifically medical gaslighting, so in, in this case, you know, you you clearly, after so many years of suffering, eventually started to advocate for yourself. What tips have you learned along the way? So how should a patient go about navigating the medical community? Like what should they look out for in terms of signs that they might be being gaslit in their consultations? Um, and, you know, basically what can they do to get the best out of the, out of that consultation that they can? Of course. Yeah. So I would start with the idea that you need to take it with the seriousness that it deserves. Uh, doctor's appointments are not social calls. They are not free-for-alls. They're examinations. So don't go into an exam unprepared. You need to know your medical history, your most pressing problems and concerns. You need to make an argument and follow through with it. You are, and I say this a lot, but you're fighting for your life. And that is the gravity with which you need to treat navigating the medical system. When it comes to you know, what does that mean before you get in the room? It means research, uh, get online, read articles, go to, if you know what your condition is, go to nonprofits for that condition and look at, you know, doctor discussion guides, which are also available on different pharma websites. Um, you really want to do this thing 
and I, I spoke about this the other day on my Instagram stories and I, that I was kind of embarrassed about it, but I really found that it's been a great tool for me. And that is to practice your argument. So whenever I get ready to go to a doctor's appointment, I literally will <laughs> sit in front of the mirror, practice exactly what I want to say. I want to talk about the problems that I'm having. I want to talk about all the questions that I have um, and, and just prepare myself to say those words. Because when we get into exam rooms as patients, we are vulnerable. We feel vulnerable and we feel rushed. Uh, so going in with a plan and practicing it um, really is essential to success. I actually really appreciate that. Even when I have um, patients and they have oftentimes written down like notes of what they want to make sure to cover. They don't want to forget to mention something. I actually really appreciate it. And sometimes, you know, if they have it sort of typed out, I'm like, can you just send me that in a my chart message? Oh yeah. Also? Like just in case there's something that we missed just so that I have it also. Um, I think that makes a big difference because you're absolutely right. When you, you, first of all, you have such a short time. Yes. You have such a short time. And then on top of that, if you have a complicated history, to get through all the history and you really can't cover all of that in one appointment where you go through all of the history and then go through an entire plan and all the possibilities. It's very hard to get through all of that. So if you have it sort of structured the way you said it, where it's like the most important things first and then sort of secondary things, should there be time? And then if not, you can just like make an appointment for, I sometimes will have patients um, where, you know, if they have multiple focuses of pain, I will be like, okay, tell me the worst one right now. Let's go over that thoroughly. Um, and then if there are other things that don't sort of overlap that are kind of seem like separate issues, then let's talk about them in another appointment, like just dedicated to that so that we can cover everything. We're not rushing through any, any one thing. Yeah, I really found that time is one of the, the main factors in patients feeling like they're being medically gaslit because they're kind of being rushed along. Um, and that's, I always, I, I try to explain this as well, because patients, they're like, well, why, why are they like that? Are doctors evil? Are they mean? Is it, you know, is it, you know, but the reality is that medical bias and medical gaslighting is generally not intentional. It is a, um, a product of the fact that we are working with little time uh, and doctors are relying heavily on what they know, what they know about from their medical education, what they know from their practice. Um, and patients are obviously trying to get them to look at look at their situation as an individual situation. And one way that you can help your doctors to do that is to prepare and be an active participant, knowing that you have time limits and knowing that you need to be organized. And that will be something that prevents this from happening. Absolutely. And, and you know, it becomes difficult on the, on this side too, because you, you know, any healthcare professional usually will have a lot of uh, pressure in terms of a number of appointments in the day and sort of, you know, uh, how the times are slotted. And so as much as, you know, the, there are patients where it would be great if I had double or triple the time, because it's much more complicated than um, a, a much more straightforward sort of like, this happened two weeks ago and here I am versus this happened 20 years ago and it's been going on. <laughs> so very, very different type of patient. And so, you know, it was, I feel like as a physician, sometimes we also feel um, pressure to kind of not rush to the appointment, but make sure you're getting all the most pertinent 
information so that you don't miss something. Um, you don't miss something in the future, like some major factor that might be a big part of it. And then you're like, okay, and then now we can focus on other things in a different appointment. And so I think that combination, but especially when it is, I think, um, especially with women or persons of color, it does tend to um, be seen differently sometimes in doctor's visits. And that's actually uh, a thing in the sense that um, researchers have also called for more training in medical school of, about unconscious bias and racism in healthcare. So in 2019, California passed a law requiring hospitals to implement programs on implicit bias for all healthcare providers. So you know, they're they're trying to change that uh, because as you said, it's not intentional. Um, it's usually something unintentional and focusing on what you've already been taught, which as we know, research is far lacking on particularly women. Um, and so if you don't know, you tend to treat it more as, I don't know, I've never heard of this. Uh, clearly, you know, this isn't real. And so it feeds into itself. And so I think by addressing bias, that makes a big difference to prevent this from continuing to be a pattern in the future. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that, you know, it's becoming becoming laws, it's becoming something more studied. Um, obviously, I would like all physicians to host a podcast episode on it. Um, but, you know, just to be aware and open to the idea of medical bias and of medical gaslighting that like these are real things, they do exist, it makes an impact on the practice. You know, the more we talk about it, the more it's going to seep into each exam room and make doctors think like, hey, am I basing this diagnosis and treatment plan on the individual patient in front of me and what they've experienced, or am I basing it on the patient from two hours ago um, or from 10 years ago? And, you know, we all want the same thing to go into that room with a problem and come out with a solution, um, which means you don't, you know, you don't need to be seen again and again because you weren't heard or tested or acknowledged. So if we do it right the first time, and if we give the patient space to feel like they can share embarrassing details without being shamed or to have concerns without being dismissed. You know, they won't be afraid to seek care and to seek care early. Absolutely. With that, now, obviously, we've spoken a lot about patients sort of advocating for themselves. And sometimes it can be really hard for a patient to advocate for themselves if they're, let's say, like, like you, where you're in a lot of pain. It can be hard to sort of remember everything and kind of uh, be able to really take charge of that visit. So do you think that it's beneficial for a patient to bring their partner or loved one to a visit? And how can their partner or loved one, if they do bring them, advocate, help advocate for the, for the patient? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked. I had... I have a personal scenario. Um, so last week, I'm I'm currently waiting to get uh, a surgery, um, an endometriosis surgery, and uh, I'm in I am in quite a bit of pain, and I was not doing so great last week. I asked my husband to take me to my appointment, and I was upset on the way there because I had written out in my phone this whole thing, all of these notes, these questions I wanted to ask. This was my preoperative appointment. So I really wanted to make sure that everything that I wanted to know about the surgery was going to be asked and that I was going to remember it because frankly, I was on quite a bit of painkillers. So I asked my husband, of course, to drive me and to come in with me to the appointment. And I was still thinking at some point, well, I can probably still advocate for myself in the room. And then once I got into the room, I realized, oh no, like I'm I'm just, I'm not in the state to be able to speak for myself. Um, but fortunately I had prepared for that. And so I had everything in my phone and I just kind of handed it to my husband. Um, 
Now, my husband has been with me since we were 17 years old and I was sick at the time when we met and growing up, my mother kind of taught him how to advocate for me. She trained him because she was my initial first caregiver and advocate. She taught me how to advocate for myself. And then once he came into the picture, you know, anytime that we would go to the emergency room, he would come with us and she would tell him like, this is what we need to say to the doctors. This is what we need to say to the nurses. Like we need to make sure we leave here with these answers. We need to make sure we understand about these tests. And so he has always been able to, since that point, come with me to any appointment and just easily pick up where I left off. He knows my full medical history. He knows what to ask. But we have to really understand that this is not something that is innate. It is not something that is something that just comes naturally out of nowhere to know how to advocate for another person. They're not in your body. They do not know what you feel like. They may have been with you for this entire time, but not know your medical history as well as you do. So if you have somebody in your life that you can sit down with and explain, you know, this is what I want to accomplish. This is what I'm scared will happen. Can you back me up? Um, that's always something that I recommend that people do. You you want to be your own best advocate, but secondary to that, you want to have somebody who is either a partner, a parent, a friend who is able to step in when you're unable to be your own best advocate. Um, this is especially important when you're in the hospital, because we know that's a time when patients just, they're not at their best. They're sometimes unconscious. So you really do want to have somebody like that. And there's also a topic that I've discussed quite a lot, which is the difference between having a female co-advocate and a male co-advocate. Um, and we know from the studies that men are more often believed they get diagnosed first. So if you have a man in your life, a brother, a husband, a father, a male friend, um, they may serve you better to echo your complaints and concerns than your female friends. And that is a awful hard reality to kind of swallow and even to talk about. I certainly get a lot of flack about it, but I want people to survive. And that is something right now that is a real tool that they can use if they have access to it. Wow. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, and that's really, it's a really interesting um, take. Do you, do you find there to be any difference in terms of the healthcare professional themselves? Have, like, have you noticed anything in terms of the um, ages, genders, anything in terms of the healthcare professional, as far as how they might be responsive to you versus your male partner, for example? You would think so. And I get a lot of interesting stories from patients about, you know, what is better? Is it better to have a male doctor or a female doctor who gaslights more? And the reality is, from what I understand from patients, is that there really isn't a difference. It's not really about the gender of the doctor. It is sometimes about the age. Younger doctors, from what we've seen, gaslight less. Um, and that might be because they relate to younger patients and um, and they have more of an open discussion. Or it might be because patients see them as more of an authority figure. And so they are more submissive to that when they're older older doctors um, versus when they're younger doctors. So that could be part of the equation. I don't think we have enough, enough real information on that yet to really make like a super grand statement about it. But I, from what I understand so far is that 
while we may think that if we've just seen a male doctor, that a female doctor would treat us better, that is not always the case. I agree with that. I, I think it's pretty variable across the board. I don't, I don't think one can say that it's like, you know, the, this gender or this, this age or this location or this, uh, you know, city. I, I don't think you can really generalize it quite that way. I, I agree with that. I honestly think the, what you said about younger doctors, I think that's likely because there has been a lot more um, training on implicit we bias. Hope so, and, right? I hope so. It seems so. We had some, um, you know, when, when I trained, there was absolutely training on implicit bias. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can't say I know where that start, when that started, because it probably varied by state and, you know, if a state medical school probably varied by all of that, but it, we did have that training. And so it was kind of ingrained in you from the, from the beginning itself. Um, and then when you would actually be on rotations and then residency, like you would just notice it more because it was already in your head. You already knew to look for it. Do you feel like doctors who are older generations of doctors are, how do you think they feel about learning things like trauma-informed care and um, and and learning about medical bias, do you feel like there's a resistance to that for the older generations? Like, are they annoyed kind of that they have to do more training about things like this? Or do you feel like there's an openness to it? I mean, from my own personal experience, I would say that there's an openness to it. Um, I, I think that, again, I can't generalize, but from the experiences that I've had, it seems like it was more openness. It was more surprise. Like it was more sort of not realizing that, this was happening or realizing that they might be doing it or seeing something um, from a from a from an older sort of perspective or a perspective that wasn't as open. Um, and then once it was pointed out, they were much better about it. So I think there is an openness to it. I think it's just one of those things where until someone points it out to you, you just right. don't even know to look for it. And so unless it's like part of medical training, which it is now. Um, it's more likely to, you're just more likely to notice it in the future um, in, in every, in every aspect, um, not just, you know, not just in your particular field, but in all fields, because you're going through rotations and you're kind of seeing how things are from the surgical side, from the anesthesia side, from the, um, from a, you know, like an intense operating room type of situation. And also just a more outpatient, you have more time, you have more, um, uh, it's more relaxed setting. You can see it, you can notice it in both. And so um, I, I think there's been, there's been effort to change this, but it has been more recent. Uh, like it hasn't been, you know, for the past 50 years. And so I think that does make a difference with it continuing to get better and better. I think so too. I'm filled with a lot of hope and optimism about this. I, I think the more that we we even see the idea of medical gaslighting, like in the news and in media, I mean, gaslighting was the word of the year for uh, 20, I think 2022. Right. Um, so this is becoming more of a pop culture thing. I think mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot more education on it. I think we're going to see a lot more social awareness on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to really help us all. I think we've mostly you know, covered how the medical community has been progressing. But, you know, other than sort of introducing it into maybe medical school education, which they've already done, what, and and we do have sort of yearly training, um, refresher course sort of thing, 
every physician has to take. Um, I mean, I think it might be, it varies by practice and by hospital, but a lot of physicians do have to take these every year anyway. But what, what changes do you want to see happen in the medical community? What else would you like to sort of see from us as healthcare professionals? I think just general openness to understanding that this is not a war between patients and doctors. This is, you know, we see the systemic problems that are happening in the exam room and it's a collaboration. I would love to see more participatory care um, where patients are really encouraged to ask questions and to, you know, leave that room with ways to get more information, encouraged to go, you know, look this up. I know that's such a, uh, I've seen it a lot where doctors are like, don't look this up online. Like, you don't want to know any more information about it. It's like, well, actually, if you give the patients more information, they may actually do better. Um, they may actually have more of an understanding of why their care is so important. And so I'd like to see more of that. Obviously, I'd like to see a continuation of this being taught in medical schools, uh, see more trauma-informed care. You know, this will allow patients to open up. It'll give doctors the information that they need to treat in the best way that they can you know, overall, we know that it's the issue was really a time crunch. And we know that the healthcare system is struggling, um, you know, to meet the demands of patients after COVID. But I think, you know, this will stabilize over the next, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. year or so. <laughs> um, you know, but in the meantime, uh, it's a great time for all of us patients and doctors just to educate ourselves and keep learning what we can do better. Absolutely. It's, it's funny that you said, um, you know, don't look it up. Because yes. I usually actually tell patients, uh, I'm like, if you want to look it up, you you can. It's like that's completely fine. Um, but if you find something, you know, alarming or something that you're really concerned about, in, instead of just going by whatever you looked at online, feel free to reach out to me to actually ask me the question regarding whatever you found online. I'm like, I'm more than happy to like set the record straight one way or the other with it. Um, instead of like, I don't want you to fear looking stuff up. You should look stuff up, but also please ask me if you're concerned about something. <laughs> so it's a happy medium. That definitely helps, especially now that we have my chart and we have all these online communication systems. That way, when we go home and we have those questions, we can ask and we can get a response and, you know, an appropriate amount of time and, you know, <laughs> not have to wait till our next appointment right. and kind of figure it out on our own. So yeah, I agree. Right. Absolutely. Um, it's been truly an honor having you join me. It's been a wonderful discussion. Uh, I'm going to sort of end with any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners, future patients, or the healthcare community. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I guess I just want to encourage patients to be their own best advocate. Uh, this is, again, it's all a matter of preparing for your appointments. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a doctor to know your own body, um, but you can be part of the equation. You can participate in your care. So go in, treat it seriously, uh, take it seriously, make sure you have all your questions and do your best to not feel ashamed or scared to ask your questions. Uh, you have every right to answers about your health. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. 
You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.